Greetings! You're listening to the audio version of Up the Waterfall. To see us and everything we talk about, be sure to check out the video version by visiting youtube.com slash Xanaland. Thanks for listening! Well, now you got into this mess by going down a waterfall. Now, how would you suppose we could get them out of there? By going up the waterfall? That's right! Anything's possible in Disneyland. Welcome, friends, and thank you for joining us on episode 27 of Up the Waterfall. It's a fun number. With your hosts, Zana and Scott Otis. Howdy. Uh, here we take a journey up the waterfall of Disney history, past and present, sometimes. Nostalgia, sure. all those fun <laughs> things. We're informative every now and then. Uh, like this week is going to be very informative because we're going to discuss. Jules Verne. Ooh, fun topic. Uh, and his impact and presence in Disney parks. So if and you and movies and movies, Slightly. yes, yeah, I forgot you have that. On. <laughs> That's okay. This is mostly a Scott episode where I will just no. sit back and in awe and wonder at your knowledge. Oh no, <laughs> we're all doomed. <laughs> um, but for those that don't know, which I'm sure everyone listening does, Jules Verne is of course the uh, French poet, author, and playwright, famous for such novels as 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Around the World in 80 Days, and Journey to the Center of the Earth. I had to look at that one. (laughs) That's okay. All of which are represented in Disney parks and or movies. Ish. Ish. We we were discussing this (laughs) earlier. I think that Around the World in 80 Days is represented in World of Motion... There definitely is a balloon With the balloon and the guy going over the rooftops. And it definitely is a French rooftops. And he's got a pig But he goes around the I never read the book. Is there a pig in the book? Sure. Isn't there a pig in the Probably. That is actually a book I have not read. Let us know if you have read the book. Or you know definitively that that is a reference to (laughs) Around the World in 80 Days. Anyway, he was, of course, fascinated with the ideas of exploration and travel and even, you know, futuristic ideas. And he gave way to the steampunk movement in later times where you kind of are, it's futuristic things, but with a Victorian era, uh, like mechanics Mm -hmm. and and things like that. So lots of goggles and gears and cogs. (laughs) And and, rivets. um, Yes. (laughs) So kind of like if you want to see it represented right now in front of you you can go to universal at the toothsome emporium which i have no idea if that's even reopened in these times but i think it is um anyway yes our producer is saying yes it is unrelated to our topic at hand you can go see that if you want um but yes he definitely had a lasting legacy and influenced so many other authors um of our time, including Ray Bradbury. That's right. Who is also, you know, has a Disney connection, as we all know, with Epcot and Spaceship Earth. Mm -hmm. And he summed up Verne's influence on literature and science over the world by saying, we are all, in one way or another, the children of Jules Verne. Ooh, I like that. Straight from Wikipedia, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Um... And that's pretty much all I have to say on the topic, so I'll no, hand it I'm over sure to you. I'll, I'll, I'll turn to you. In <laughs> fact, I'm going to turn to you now with this French quote from oh. one of Jules Verne's novels. Okay. What is this from? Do you know? Around the World in 80 Days? It is. Oh, see? So that's what we were just talking about. Okay. <laughs> Tout ce qui est dans la limite du possible doit être et sera accompli. Which means, of course, there's no translation on this paper. This is just me knowing French fluently. Whatever one man (laughs) is capable of conceiving, other men will be able to achieve. Ooh, that's right. (laughs) So, yeah. um, So, as she said, yes, uh, Jules Verne is, in fact, a famous French author. And I was actually a huge fan of his uh, when I was a young boy reading... The 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea novel, which, you know, I've read it so often that the cover is actually gone from this. I'll have to get you a new one. But, yeah, this <laughs> is the actual book that I used to thumb over. I would uh, get a map, 
with me and, and basically chart uh, the course of Captain Nemo and the Nautilus, uh, the submarine Nautilus all over like the world you. as I read this. I so. was reading Judy Bloom at the time, probably, <laughs> so a little lighter, although some of them were. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, according to UNESCO, he is actually the second most translated author in the world. Uh, behind Agatha Christie and just slightly ahead of William Shakespeare. Wow, so. I just read that on Wikipedia also. So. Oh, yeah? Look well, at there us. There you go. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so, but his, yeah, his novels uh, were just so, uh, all of the voyages and things that that he described, they were just so fanciful, uh, long descriptions of flora and fauna, um, just my kind of thing. I love those things. I'm sad I missed reading them because, as you know, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Well, guess what? You still can. Silmarillion. So I'm into details. Well, there you go. Right. We'll have to read I Jules Verne together. We'll start a book club. Anyway, uh, a lot of his novels are uh, regarding extraordinary voyages that deal with you know humanity's attempt to conquer nature, harnessing and harvesting its resources and all that entails. So, and, and you'll yeah. certainly see that with Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, now, Disney became fascinated with that and decided to make a movie after he had already uh, gotten into live-action movies that he, he made four of them in the United Kingdom. He decided to um, venture out and do another one, this time filmed a lot closer, uh, filmed in uh, actually just off the coast of Nassau in the Bahamas. Hmm. Um, and this was just a... A huge undertaking, and it with a massive budget, uh, he got a lot of stars, including James Mason as Captain Nemo, Kirk Douglas as the harpooner Ned Land, and um, Peter Lorre as Conceal. I will spare you my <laughs> Peter Lorre impression. <laughs> Although I did recently watch that when it was on the Turner Classic Movies. Oh yeah, I don't. That was a couple of years ago, I guess now, and I had never seen it before, so yeah, it was. I have it here as the. This is a DVD, but of course yeah. you can also find it in Blu-ray. It was very funny to me because there was a lot of beards, and I said that that was the origin of the hipster beard <laughs> movement. Yeah, there's uh, <laughs> there's really not a lot of women in that movie. Hmm. Only in the one scene in San Francisco at the beginning of the film. But um, Ladies weren't allowed to go under the water. Yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> when we get to Walt Disney World, that also comes to play. But we'll uh, talk about that in a bit. Anyway, um, so this movie was, as I mentioned, was a huge uh, uh, undertaking of, with a big budget. Um, and it was very successful as well. Um, and it actually was nominated for three Academy Awards, winning two uh, for Best um, Art Direction and Editing. Actually, I'm sorry. It was special effects and art direction. Was it was nominated say, it for editing. Special yeah, special effects with Ub Iwerks uh, at the helm of that, and Emil Curry um, mm. doing the uh, art direction. So, uh, in fact, the art direction was very important. If you remember, um, Captain Nemo's uh, main lounge, with replete with uh, velvet chairs, divans, rococo ornamentation, and a lot of uh, you know, actually a pipe organ and all kinds of things from under the sea that he used there. And it was you know, a massive set, a 200-foot-long uh, submarine, the Nautilus. Um, wow. Yeah, just a huge thing. It's and, like and Tower of Terror laying on its side. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, the, the story of which is, you know, in San Francisco, they realize there's this um, sea monster that keeps attacking all these ships, and so they... Uh, they, a professor and also Ned Land, the harpooner, decide to set out on the Abraham Lincoln, a ship, a steamer ship, to try to capture this sea monster. And they eventually get capsized from that boat as it was rammed by the Nautilus. And then they get, you know, they end up on the Nautilus and they realize, wait a minute, this isn't a, a sea monster at all. It's a massive submarine. And that's where they meet Captain Nemo. And then they were kind of held captive by him and they essentially sail all around the world hmm. ending up at Volcania his private island <laughs> why did his, he keep them captive sea base. I don't um, because remember. he I couldn't out the they movie. couldn't be released because then they would reveal his secrets ah okay makes sense yeah very similar to Atlantis Ooh, in, yeah. in parts like well there's a, there's a lot of steampunk there too yeah, yeah. I definitely say that that was an Makes inspiration. Makes me want to see Atlantis again. We should do a story <laughs> on under uh, story, <laughs> a podcast on underrated yeah. Disney animated films. I'd like Let's that. write that down. Atlantis is definitely on that list. 
Anyway, but I digress. Um, that's okay. Uh, Walt Disney realized that not only was this a massive um, film to make, but it was the just the making of the film was so interesting that he decided to do uh, just a TV program just on that called Operation Undersea, and it was actually, I believe, the sixth um, show on his uh, the Disneyland TV show that was released in 1954. On like the making of. Yeah, the movie? yeah, on the making of the movie. And, it, and that was so good that it won an Emmy for Best Documentary. So it was, and as I mentioned, it was just really a very successful film. And so Walt Disney was in on the whole Jules Verne thing. So here's a fun quote from Jules Verne in the novel 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. The sea is everything. It covers seven-tenths of the terrestrial globe. Its breadth is pure and healthy. It is an immense desert where man is never lonely, for he feels life stirring on all sides. The sea is only the embodiment of a supernatural and wonderful existence. It is nothing but love and emotion. It is living infinite. Interesting. Yeah. A lot of times you hear the sea described as angry. So that's interesting to hear it described as nothing well, but think, love and emotion. I think the angry part of the sea is on the surface, mm. but it's when you probe the depths where it happens. Interesting. So anyway, um, Walt Disney at this time, of course, was also building a theme park, Disneyland, which was to open just the following year after the movie um, came out in 1954. And uh, he didn't really have a lot going on in, in his Tomorrowland section. And so he wanted to have something uh, on opening day. So they, he wanted to have the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea exhibit where they had uh, all of the sets and props from that film. In, in, in such a way where it would be fun. Um, they didn't quite make opening day. It was uh, actually August 5th, 1955 that it opened, uh, which is just, I believe, three weeks after Disneyland opened. And this is uh, essentially where Star Tours is now and mm -hmm. where Adventure Through Inner Space once was. Uh, essentially, you there was a, a big mural with the um, kind of the the poster art, if you will, of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea movie painted in uh, fluorescent paint. And you'd basically just go in and it would be a walkthrough exhibit with uh, all of the sets um, from that movie. We have a mural behind you. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Not really. It's a poster. That one. Oh, wow. That is fancy. I forgot I, about I that. I will see if I can find a link to that and post it. Yeah, that's that. really nice. That's one we of our favorites. We got that at the expo at one of the booths. At the 23 Expo. I think it was Society 6 that was selling them, but I can't remember. Could be. I'll do some research. Anyway, one of the things I wanted to say is uh, here you will see a lot of the things where um, Imagineering basically either reuses attractions or bits and pieces from existing attractions into future attractions, or also uh, attractions that never get built where uh, certain elements of that uh, you'll see later. So a lot of these sets um, from this walking walkthrough exhibit we'll see later. So anyway, uh, furthering through time, uh, Disney made another Jules Verne-based um, novel into a movie called In Search of the Castaways. Now this one wasn't too big other than the fact that it was one of Haley Mills's six films with uh, with Disney and where she starred with Maurice Chevalier and they actually sang a very famous Sherman Brothers hit called Enjoy It in kind of French. <laughs> Why cry about the weather? Enjoy it. Hmm. Do you not remember this? I probably saw it in the 80s on the Disney Channel because that's <laughs> how I saw all Haley Mills's movies but ah, yes. I have no real memory of it. Yeah, so this was based on Jules, uh, Jules Verne's novel, Captain Grant's Children. And there really isn't much to add to that, other than that was a fun one. <laughs> um, actually, I, I should go back a little bit. Um, shortly after um, the opening of Disneyland in its fourth year, in 1959, they did open a submarine attraction, and it's curious that it was not um, based on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea but just a s submarine voyage. Hmm. Um, although one of the original submarines was named the Nautilus, which was, um, and it was actually named after an actual sub from the United States Navy that had just the year before uh, finally uh, kind of probed underneath the polar ice cap. And so they included a lot of the um, same uh, elements in this submarine voyage that were then um, taken to Walt Disney World when it opened. 
And so when Walt Disney World opened in 1971, you know, they, because this was a whole brand new park, they wanted it to be slightly different from Disneyland. And so they did want to have a submarine attraction, but they wanted it to be unique and different. And so they actually did base that one off of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, in concluding, the famous, um, you know, the Nautilus submarines actually yeah. probing through. And surely you have been on this attraction, <laughs> right? Sadly, no. What? <laughs> it is my biggest disgrace and regret as I a Disney I wouldn't call it a disgrace. Uh, definitely well, a regret. I was always afraid of it as a child because oh I knew that there was a giant octopus squid That's monster right. involved. And I wasn't a fan of those kind of things. I liked oh no. rainbows and unicorns and <laughs> did not want to be scared by anything. And also the fact that, you know, I didn't know my small eight-year-old brain like how it worked so i thought uh, i was going in a weird submarine underwater that's and the coolest thing though it's I know. one of the i mean where else in the world can you get on a submarine and go under underwater <laughs> that was so, the idea yeah i avoided it for years and years uh, and then um when i was you know presumably an adult i just never got around to it i was just like eh, yeah whatever it's been this long and then we finally <laughs> moved to Orlando in 95 it had already closed so I missed my opportunity that's too bad I know they still have the submarine <laughs> voyage out at Disneyland yes so I have since watched videos of and it, we've so been it's on very that, interesting course, together oh yeah the, the finding Nemo Disney, yes the finding Nemo submarine I, so I just like that they do still have submarines when that opened there that was never <clears throat> 20,000 leagues no. themed it was just no, it was always submarine, submarine voyage, voyage which was kind of based off of actual uh, nuclear submarines wow yeah although as I mentioned one of them was named the Nautilus hmm. so yeah interesting yeah they never had a Captain Nemo over there or anything hmm. but this one was uh, the one that, that opened at, um, at Disney World which actually did not open with the park on October 1st but just very slightly later um, it did. It was, as I mentioned, themed after Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. It was uh, narrated by Captain Nemo. It was just this amazing, fancy lagoon, a huge swath of land. I guess not land, but ocean. Yeah. Um, with pristine waters, just. Mm. I know. I do miss being able to take photos of just like yeah. water. Not that I had a digital camera back then, but. <laughs> <laughs> Actually. Um, that's, what, that's funny. They actually had a very interesting queue, um, which we'll talk about later, but it um, it looked like it was made out of kind of like volcanic rock mm -hmm. uh, where you'd kind of weave in and out. And actually during uh, the queue, they actually had a narration by Captain Nemo um, while other nautical-inspired instrumental music played. They, they had a lot of different narrations, including one like this one. How old is the Earth? How is it formed? These and other questions about our watery planet have intrigued man since the beginning of time. As far as we know, the oceans have existed for some four and a half billion years. And for about the last 100 million years, the sea has been a living, dynamic world, shaped and reshaping continents, geologically speaking. Mountains have been raised and worn away by falling and running water. The debris carried on to the lowlands and then back to the sea. Our marine scientists at Volcania believe that the sediments below the waves contain a continuous record of terrestrial history. And to this end, we keep probing the ocean floor. Interesting. Very um, Epcot-ish yes. in, in like the wording. Yes, and there's actually like a, a <clears throat> set of five or six of those <clears throat> that are narrated by Captain Nemo as you are listening to uh, this, um, basically waiting t for your turn in the sub. And uh, I don't know, for those of you folks that have not been on this um, attraction, it's very interesting in that um, you kind of enter through a hatch on either end of the sub and then go down a very tight a spiral staircase to a row of seats like, th I think it's um, 20 seats on each side. <clears throat> That's so crazy. Each one has an individual porthole that c that basically looks out as the submarine goes along. Uh, and I guess so that folks on both sides can have the same fun show. They in interestingly, interestingly enough, everything happened to be duplicated on both sides. So... <laughs> 
in sorry this is like no, unrelated but i'm just asking you is the track and the interior of the vehicles were those the same for world and land pretty much okay. yes well I, I i'm sorry the interior of the subs yes the track it was slightly different based on the the land mm. that it went off of but it, you know but since you were observing it just through a porthole yeah it essentially didn't matter right. because you went along and eventually you went underwater under a waterfall that created bubbles hmm. that made it look like you were diving. Yeah. And then, of course, you're now in an interior show scene with, where they have all of the sets. And actually, that's interesting because this one went through, um, like, shipwrecks where you, and places where you see divers on either side, which came directly from the movie. Um, lots of sea life. An encounter with a sea serpent, which is different than the encounter with a squid. Right. The sea serpent is pretty friendly. The sea serpent is friendly. I think b it's because we're starting to maybe possibly hallucinate. And we see a <laughs> sea serpent and we're mermaids. We're losing oxygen. And, and Captain Nemo asks Mr. Baxter, uh, should we uh, put this in the log? Uh, no, nobody would believe us anyway. I think we've been submerged too long. <laughs> so, yeah. And then, uh, as I mentioned, yeah, the uh, an encounter with the uh, giant squid, which actually came directly from the movie... Um, which I had actually forgotten to mention. That was such a, a, an iconic scene from the movie. Um, they actually filmed it in the daytime and they realized this wasn't, wasn't quite as dramatic enough. And so they actually made it at night during a, a huge storm. Hmm. And at one point, the squid comes out and grabs Captain Nemo m with one of his tentacles and Ned Land has to save <coughs> the day with <coughs> his harpoon. Hi. Where he actually sends the harpoon right into his little beak. <laughs> Poor guy. Aww. But and they eventually get rid of him by uh, putting an electric charge because that's one of uh, Captain Nemo's kind of inventions was mm. electricity and using it off of the submarine to get get rid of the squid. As so demonstrated in the Mickey short. Oh, that's right. <laughs> oh, I was going to talk about that one later too. Uh, but anyway, so as you were... Um, uh, going along on the actual submarine, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, at Magic Kingdom, you do encounter this giant squid. And one of the things that you see is a different giant squid with a different nautilus in one of his tentacles. Yeah. Crazy. So just as you were saying, an eight, little eight-year-old you was scared. I guess, yeah. Well, my mom also would, like, she doesn't do that kind of enclosed space uh, yeah. thing so definitely is enclosed <laughs> yeah i guess we just never made our way back over there that's so. okay as i said since they still do have the submarine voyage uh, with finding nemo at disneyland at least we can enjoy that but it also goes under the polar ice cap which was another fun thing um but anyway so this attraction at both disneyland and disney world had massive um, maintenance budgets just because of the constant water and keep trying to keep it clean and always had low um, low throughput low capacity mm. because they were very slow subs they didn't uh, you know you could only fit originally you could only fit 38 per sub and then they finally increased it to 40 <laughs> per sub by adding two oh. seats um, but yeah uh, so the one at Disney World it did finally uh, it closed for maintenance at one point in the year 1994. Um, and then it never reopened. In 1996, a couple years later, they announced, yeah, remember that thing that we, uh, where we closed it? Yeah, it's not going to reopen again. Much to the dismay of fans around the world. That is true, including myself. But interestingly enough, the lagoon itself remained for another 10 years after it closed, from 1994 through 2004. So they didn't really know what to do with it. Thing. Yeah, they actually, they had the submarines, they had them positioned in the mm. lagoon, kind of enticing us to, as to what we missed. Yeah, because <laughs> the Skyway was still open for a little bit. For a little bit, yeah. Um, so it was fun to see them in there. Oh, yeah, you can, the different viewpoint from up there. Yeah. Um, but anyway, th so they did use the, the space of the queue as a character meet and greet eventually, yes. um, Ariel's for Grotto. Ariel's Grotto. Yeah. Where they, you can meet Ariel, uh, which is a really interesting place, a unique meet and greet just because of the volcanic rock and all of that. 
and with the you know the background of the lagoon so hmm. but eventually uh, after 2004 when it finally closed for good that's where they they leveled over it and they put Pooh's playful spot which was a temporary kids playground which would eventually be, then be uh, the location of the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. Yes. As well as the aerial Ari- undersea oh. adventure. <laughs> yeah. Which we always I forget the name, the name of. of it. The Magic of the Little Mermaid Under the Sea <laughs> Voyage of In Fun. clamshells. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have to look mm-hmm. up the name of that again. That's Dang okay. Well, one of the unique things about that is they actually put in a couple of uh, Nautilus references. Uh, in the Poos Playful Spot, they had a, a massive tree that kids could w- crawl through, and they had in a, kind of carved in there a little Nautilus sub, maybe three to five inches long. The, and they eventually, when they moved that tree across the way to the uh, Winnie the Poos adventures there, that's you could still go in that tree and see it today. Yes. And then, of course, also in the queue area of the aerial attraction, which is named... Under the Sea, dash, Journey of the Little Mermaid. And actually, I realized in the official nomenclature, that dash is actually kind of like a little, a little tilde, tilde. <laughs> which is weird. But that's Disney in their nomenclature for you. Yeah. But anyway, in the, <laughs> in the queue of that attraction, they have this um, elaborate rock work. And from one point, you can see uh, just a really neat Nautilus sub. Mm-hmm. That's really a big one. Yeah, but it's, it's fun to see. Kind of hidden. So don't zoom through the queue. Never zoom through the queue. Look right at the last water area before you go inside. That's right. Now going back in time, uh, so that uh, that attraction to open in '71. Now we already talked about the closing, but I am kind of going in a linear fashion. Uh, that Disney did eventually make another movie inspired by one of Jules Verne's novel, novels called Island at the Top of the World. Mm. And this was kind of a, an, another weird film. It kind of took place um, in the Arctic area in a dirigible balloon. And there's not really much to say about that except that the dirigible balloon named Hyperion, interesting enough, um, would come to... Uh, come to some future ideas in the parks later because I think it was from this film and a bunch of other things that to- our friend Tony Baxter uh, Imagineer extraordinaire who you know he actually worked on the the 20,000 leagues under the sea at Magic Kingdom he helped open that um, you know he took the idea of that dirigible from that movie and a bunch of other things and came up with an, an idea for Disneyland called Discovery Bay. Mm, Discovery Bay. That's right. Now, this was right around the time when they were planning to um, build Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. So they had shut down the mine train through nature's wonderland. And there was a huge amount of land that was made for that attraction. And only some of it was being used for Big Thunder Mountain. But there was quite a lot more that was not being used. This is where those Cascade Falls and Mm. all of that were. And so Tony Baxter had the idea, let's build a place called Discovery Bay. Boy, did he have an idea. Oh my gosh, did he. Sorry, if I you ever to. get the chance, <laughs> and I will link to a video in, well, Christian may put some scenes from Discovery Bay concept art in the video here. Well, you're watching them right now, probably. Um, it's amazing to hear him talk about it because it was so incredibly detailed and just really cool oh yeah similar to his um concepts for the original epcot center disneyland is around 80 developed acres in addition to that are these 30 acres up here 35 that have nothing in them discovery bay is kind of a once only place in time it's a victorian uh place that occurred at the turn of the century it's the kind of place that jules verne or hg wells might have inhabited so you'll actually be able to for instance board the nautilus and have a very elegant meal down below the water while you're being serenaded on the pipe organ and looking out at all the uh, scenic wonders of the ocean floor from those overhead windows. This is just one of the adventures that might go into here. There's, uh, like I said, a flight on an aerial suspended monorail system that looks like a dirigible and a time machine. And just hearing him talk about it, you can tell that he just really wished 
that it oh, would yeah. have happened. This is like one of his biggest regrets that that never <sighs> got made. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was basically a Victorian-themed, turn-of-the-century land uh, that had all kinds of adventure elements, including that Hyperion dirigible, um, where you'd be on a flight on an... There would be a flight on an aerial suspended monorail on this um, Hyperion dirigible, a huge balloon, um, as well as an underwater restaurant aboard the Nautilus. Wow. And so this would be another idea where there would be a lagoon with the Nautilus present, which we will then actually see in a couple other places. That's kind of mm-hmm. like what I was saying earlier is a lot of things get recycled get, yeah. or reused. Um, I do enjoy that about Disney. But in addition to the to the land, he was actually wanting there to be a companion TV series mm. that would uh, go along with that, that would introduce a lot of the characters, including one called Dreamfinder, which would we would learn was about that later. Dreamfinder or Captain Salty Hinder or whatever his <laughs> name was. Remember that guy? I barely okay. do. He wasn't. He was discussed in the Epcot <clears throat> thirty uh, Tony Baxter. Oh, that's right. Captain Salty Hinder, I believe, is his name. Correct yes. me if I'm wrong. And of course, his little pal Figment. Yeah. Which yeah. we would then later <laughs> encounter. And he did get. A flying dirigible also. Yes, he did. And his Very reminiscent of the Hyperion. But anyway, so this TV series that he was going to have as a companion piece to the opening of this land would introduce all these characters, including folks like Captain Nemo and um, other people that would eventually kind of form this uh, society, a society of explorers and adventurers, or SEA, which we would later come to know from a bunch of other things. Another topic idea. That's right. Uh, But anyway, uh, it also inspired a bunch of other things. Um, The fireworks factory at Pleasure Island was one of the the venues that was supposed to be at this um, Discovery Bay. I did not know that. That's cool. I used to love it there. Yeah, me too. I still have matches from there. Uh (laughs) And uh, as I mentioned, Journey into Imagination as well. So this land eventually um, did not come to be. And... Tony Baxter would have to fight another <coughs> fight. <coughs> but eventually he would win, uh, which we'll talk about in just a very little bit. But right before that, uh, Epcot opened, of course, and uh, then Horizons opened. And in Horizons, there is... Now, this one you have been on, of course, right? <laughs> once or twice. <laughs> yes, once or twice, 100,000 as well. So here there is a, a fun direct Jules Verne reference. Would the you like to talk about that? The grand old man himself. That's right. Yes, Jules Verne and his little floating Victorian velvet padded space and capsule. And of course it would be velvet padded because yes. that's how they were with little ch- with chickens. With a chicken, <laughs> at least one chicken and a dog in there. Was the dog float? Oh, we, we might, I think there might have been a couple of chickens and we're thinking about Napoleon. I looked it up and okay. uh, what, we'll, we'll show have a scenes from it anyway. Yeah. But, but yeah. so this was the idea where they're th- um, imagining the future as told by f- folks from the past, mm-hmm. including Jules Verne, one of the more forward thinkers of our time, or of yes. a previous time, I guess I should say. So it was fun to see Jules Verne himself in there, and this was actually the you know he's in the capsule that is from the Earth to the Moon, where they actually I think the previous scene you could see them loading the bullet into the giant cannon mm-hmm. and then shot into the uh, the moon's eye. That yes. weird thing. Weird moon thing. <laughs> and of course, my 100, and, I mean, 80 days, 180 days, thinking of uh, dining reservations. The 80 <laughs> days around the world balloon, which I insist is from that, from World of Motion. In the World of Motion, that's right. <laughs> I, I don't know. As it. I said, I know that the rooftops that, you, that he's flying over are French. So how could it not be from there? Yeah. It makes perfect sense. It does make perfect sense. We've just never thought about it. That's right. I should also say they opened the Living Seas right around this time in 1986, and they actually had in the queue, in the winding queue at the beginning, uh, a little miniature Nautilus. might have been the same one that was in the clutches of the giant squid from earlier. Whoa. That's crazy. But probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But they had a Nautilus in that queue. Um, But then Tony Baxter gets his revenge. Not really revenge, but... (laughs) This you know he's this, he uh, was helping design and create another park out in Europe called 
Euro Disneyland, which they opened in 1992. And he was the master designer for this. But basically, they had learned um, from all of the you know, previous two, I guess you could say, Tomorrowlands, that, you know, they kept being outdated. They, right. You know, the ideas for the future just never would work out. So they instead decided to, instead of making it Tomorrowland, they made it Discoveryland, which was inspired by... Jules Verne and the writings of Jules Verne and and all of these things you know a lot of steampunk and that kind of thing lots of brass colors yes so they had a couple of things that they needed to do with this uh, discovery land they were basically paying tribute to past visions of the future and creating a timeless atmosphere um, that you know so these were the principles that were underlying the entire philosophy of discovery land and additionally they wanted to use a lot of European culture because they were in Europe and so they used a lot of the authors from that time, H.G. Wells from, um, and Jules Verne, Leonardo da Vinci, that kind of thing. Um, so one of the things also is when um, that park opened, one of the initial plans uh, was on their main street. It was so beautiful and Victorian. They wanted to have actually an, an elevated... In, like you know how at Disneyland they have all of the streetcars that go right up the street mm-hmm. they wanted to have like an elevated train that would be on the second level that would g- proceed all the way down the street and all the way into Discovery Land wow yeah and so at that point there would be a giant uh, you know station uh, where upon guests uh, you know coming out of their car they would see all of the visions of the future you know the Orbitron this Discovery Mountain or Space Mountain. They kind of alternated between the two. You would see that Hyperion dirigible that we mentioned earlier in Cafe um, Videopolis. Or actually, it was Cafe Hyperion, which with a Videopolis theme as well. Um, and then there would be a floating Nautilus as well in a lagoon. Um, and some of the other ideas that they had were um, a lot of these transparent tubes that people would be able to uh, go in between all of the different shows or exhibits or uh, eateries between. Hmm. Um, so that was a very unique <laughs> thing. That didn't happen. Yeah, so they, ha- they were kind of tossing around between a lot of these different themes. And as I mentioned, the uh, mountain um, in, Discovery, in Discovery Land would be called at one point Discovery Mountain, and then it would kind of alternate between that and Space Mountain. And and that was based off of Jules Verne's novel Mysterious Island. Mm-hmm. Or So that one kind of didn't come to be, but we'll discover that one later in a different park. Um, but anyway, also that train, uh, the elevated train, never came to be. But that one also came to um, came to pass in a future park, which we'll also talk about. Mm. I think a lot of you might know which ones. But anyway, uh, so at the opening of this land, they had the largest restaurant. It was it was a you know quick service restaurant, but it was the largest one in the entire park. It was called Cafe Hyperion or Videopolis. Disneyland had a previous. Uh, venue called Videopolis, which was a dance venue. Mm-hmm. And I think they might have, I think they were trying to incorporate that also. And they had giant screens as well that you could see things on. It was the 90s, so. It, yeah, it, it sure was. The early 90s. Um, but then also, th- uh, they included another fun attraction at the opening. And actually, that is in French. Can you help me with that? Un voyage à travers le temps. Ooh. This was another uh, an opening day attraction at Discoveryland in, in Euro Disneyland, which we actually know of as the Timekeeper. It was also alternately known as Le Visionarium. Um, this was an attraction that a lot of us know because it was in the Magic Kingdom from 1990. Th- I'm sorry, from 1994 through 2006, and in the in the Magic Kingdom version, it actually starred Robin Williams as the Timekeeper. And this was a very interesting uh, concept where basically it was, uh, you know, this is, you know, first of all, a 360-degree film like we had seen before mm-hmm. in a lot of places. But this one actually had some audio animatronics in the kind of in the middle of the show. And there was the Nine-Eye character, which was a little robot that had nine eyes, which would eventually be the essentially the cameras that we would see out of. 
Um, and so the story here is that the timekeeper basically went back in time and eventually he actually goes a little bit too far back in time and he sees cavemen and all that and realizes, uh -oh. oh, this is not quite what we want. And he starts proceeding through time. And at one point we actually see Leonardo da Vinci and the Mona Lisa. But he's kind of ignoring the Mona Lisa because he's trying to uh, create some flying machines instead. Uh, we encounter Mozart and one of his performances for King Louis XV. And then eventually they come upon the, the World's Fair in Paris at the turn of the century. This is right mm. around the Victorian era. And actually, in, uh, this is where we come across an encounter with actual Jules Verne character uh, talking with H.G. Wells. And we kind of see that. Um, and they're having a very lively debate about you know, whether each of their novels, you know, how realistic are they. And, uh, of course, H.G. Wells is portrayed by Jeremy Irons we would know as Scar from The Lion King. Ah, yes. And he was also, a, of course, a narrator on The Spaceship Earth. But, um, so it was just fun seeing them together and talking about their novels. And then eventually the timekeeper realizes, okay, we have to move along. But by this time, Jules Verne himself spots Nainai and starts to wonder what's going on. And so he actually grabs onto Nainai and, um, then they get thrown into the future. And mm -hmm. so, and at first they go into the, what is our present, and they are flying through Europe. And uh, there's some very famous scenes with Jules Verne on the nose of the, um, the TGV train that goes uh, all, you know, a fast-moving train through France. Mm -hmm. He actually ends up in a, in a race car, in a, you know, basically racing around in a race car. And eventually into the future, mm. where they see Paris from, I think, like the year 3000 or something like that, which maybe was the inspiration for a lot of how he got a lot of his ideas. And a Jonas Brothers song. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a fun um, attraction that they um, built in, in Disneyland Paris, though, it's because it didn't have Robin Williams it wasn't as manic or you know crazy because of a lot of his antics mm -hmm. it was a lot more of a peaceful um tranquil um lovely setting if you jaunt will jaunt through time yeah and and as i mentioned uh, that that attraction which opened at disneyland paris also came to the Magic Kingdom from 1994 through 2006, and then was also um, shown in Tokyo Disneyland from 1993 to through 2002. So, but that was not the only attraction uh, that opened in in Discoveryland. Um, just shortly after the opening of that park in 1994, they had the Nautilus exhibit as well. And this is where they borrowed a lot from that walkthrough attraction at Disneyland that opened in 1955 and they opened it there in Paris and this was what we actually got to physically go down a set of stairs into the actual belly of the beast into the Nautilus itself um, where you got to see the ballast's compartment uh, including the treasures that, ne that Captain Nemo had salvaged you got to go through Captain Nemo's you know bedroom and, his, and the bathroom and see all of the books on his shelves all you know everything so fancy and uh, lots of um, props and things then you got to go through the charts room with uh, lots of maps including the map of his volcania his you know his island um, and in that room there's actually a staircase that goes up to the um, to the wheelhouse above Ooh. which which unfortunately you can't go through into they had Dang it roped it. off <laughs> Then you got to go through a diving chamber with lots of diving suits. And it's in this location that they actually have um, right on the floor an actual entrance into the ocean below. And you get, you know, you see the water bubbling up Whoa. and blasting through. Really very uh, done extremely realistically. Um, then you got to go into the main salon, which is, as I mentioned, that very well-appointed room with a lot of the Victorian elements. Um, and it's in this location where they had that fanciful window that opened up in a, in a weird kind of... Shutter. 
shutter. Yeah, I guess yeah, it's like a camera shutter. Um, and then when that opens, you can see that squid, the giant squid attack there. And you can mm. even see some of the little electric charges to, to fight him off. Yikes. And it's in this same room that they have a Captain Nemo's um, organ that, you know, it's piping that Takata and Fugue in D minor by Johann Sebastian Bach, oh, which yes. is very f- a very famous scene from the actual movie itself, um, the original movie. So, you know, so this was just a really cool uh, thing, uh, cool attraction at Dis- Discoveryland. And you can actually, you know, it's still open to this day. Uh, there is actually one final room that you go through, the engine room, with all, you know, where you can see how they get their nuclear energy that, pr- that powers the entire sub, with lots of machines whirring and, you know, fancy uh, lights and things to represent that nuclear power. So this was actually uh, all created by uh, an Imagineer named Tom Sherman, who was, you know, even before he became an Imagineer, he was just fascinated by all things Jules Verne in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and specifically. He actually created 250, um, actually more than that, of actual napkin drawings of every aspect of the Nautilus. Get that man a sketchbook. Yeah. And actually this book, which I'll show you later, has a lot of those... um, uh, sketches. Yeah, a lot of those napkin <laughs> sketches. And so th- he actually was used to create this Nautilus attraction. And so there's actually a lagoon right in front of Space Mountain where that Nautilus sits, which is really cool. And then, of course, as I mentioned, Space Mountain. They also opened that a couple years later uh, in 1995. Um, that opened on June 1st, 1995. Um, and this one was actually based off of uh, Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon with that kind of the moon shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we described this a little bit in our previous show. Yes, Space, Space Mountain. Mountain and all about it. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, won't go into, to that. I won't go into too much detail, although I will say that they did have, uh, just like from that book, they had the El Columbia, or I should say the... Um, Columbiad. The Columbiad, which was kind of right from the um, from his novel, where they shoot the uh, the the bullet, if you will, the bullet or capsule. The, the capsule up the side of Space Mountain, and then in the and then it dives into the mountain itself, and actually they even called it De la Terre à la Lune. Did I say that right? Sure. From the Earth to the Moon. Maybe duh, not day, but that's oops. Okay. <laughs> they actually used an aircraft uh, carrier catapult as a way to launch the cars up the 45-degree uh, angle, 50 miles an hour, up the 118-foot-high mountain. Wow. So it was such a, an amazing attraction, a lot of story, you know, combining technology as well as story, that it won Thea's Best Attraction of the Year Award. Eventually, though, they... Um, they rethemed Space Mountain there to Space Mountain 2, or Space Mountain Mission 2, mm-hmm. where they got rid of all of the Jules Verne's reference. The Columbiad canon still exists there, but I don't know why they did that. So basically, this whole land now with that dirigible, the Hyperion dirigible, and the, the Nautilus in the lagoon, and the, you know, the Space Mountain with the, with the moonshot, it's just a, a land that's just geared to all things Jules Verne. Very cool. Yeah. Another Jules Verne quote, I dream with my eyes open. That's actually from his novel Journey to the Center of the Earth, which we'll find in our next place. Now this next place is Walt Disney Imagineering's Pièce de Résistance. <laughs> it's, you know, Imagineering at its finest. Um, this is, of so course, Mysterious <laughs> Island, which is a whole land in their amazing theme park, Tokyo Disney Sea, which opened in the year 2001. September 4th, actually. Um, wow. So this whole land is literally in the, it sits within the caldera of a giant volcano. Uh, the volcano itself is called Mount Prometheus which is essentially, it's the weenie of the park, kind of as Cinderella Castle is to the Tokyo Disneyland Park. Mount Prometheus is to 
Tokyo Disney Sea, where you can see it from every location within the park. And at some points, the volcano itself erupts with fire and lava. Yeah. And it's just amazing. We'll actually, uh, I think, uh, link to some either shots or maybe some video of that, I hope. Let's go, go get some right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what's just really cool about this land, um, I've had the fortune of, of being able to go there in the years 2010 and 2011. I'll I'll take you as well. <laughs> I'm good for right now. For now, yes, but you have to see it. Um, what's really cool about this land is there are so many different entrances into it um, that come, you know, one's from the uh, Mermaid Lagoon, one's from Port Discovery, another one is from uh, the, the Mediterranean. Italian, yeah, Mediterranean Harbor. Thank you. And I I've never remember. been there, folks. I. I just have a lot of lot of stuff going through my mind, um, and this is just really the coolest thing because each each entry point is uh, is so unique from all of the others, and you know it's just where there's all kinds of mountain rock work from the mountain itself, volcanic stuff. Um, it's just really interesting to see no matter which place you go or, uh, you enter from. And all the while, as I mentioned, the mountain is erupting and, and you see these vehicles going, which we'll talk about in just a bit. This is very tiny. I do not think I'll be able to fit into this. <laughs> well, they have larger versions there. But anyway, they do have a couple of really cool attractions there w that are in the caldera of this volcano. Uh, first of which is 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Um, and this is wait. I can ride it there. You can ride it there too. Although this one's slightly different. So, as I mentioned, in the giant caldera, right at the bottom, you have um, all of the ocean water, uh, and it's bubbling up and all of that. And there, of course, is a Nautilus submarine uh, docked there. And. And there's just so many steampunk elements all throughout and a lot of uh, patinaed um, uh, metalwork and all mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Giant drills that are going through the mountain mm. um, that are probing into that. Um, all kinds of things, every which way you look. Um, and then they also have kind of like a crane that has a different submersible taken out of that. And that's actually Captain Nemo's personal submarine, you know, kind of his like side submarine the Neptune which <laughs> we will then sub. ride uh, oh. when we go into 20,000 leagues under the sea and so there's this giant um, <clears throat> uh, rotating not um, what's the word a, a walkway that kind of tw uh, goes down what do you call that like a corkscrew in a corkscrew <laughs> fashion yes good lord sorry <laughs> <laughs> I think I've been submerged too long. I think so. Anyway, this is the entry point to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And in the whole queue area, you go through all of Captain Nemo's, like his offices and, and all of that, and where you see um, just a lot of his props and things like that as you uh, are waiting to board the personal submarine of the Neptune which we see outside, as I mentioned. And what's unique about this one is that there's actually three different windows on the submarine itself. And so each one gives you a different viewpoint, one of which even kind of looks behind you. Hmm. And Wells and it, of the resistance. Yeah, and so it seats six people, uh, two that sit um, in each of the three windows. And each one actually kind of uh, it has a joystick that controls a lamp where you can kind of point that lamp to see what oh. uh, to kind of focus in on what you want and so eventually it, it goes underwater through a lot of uh, sets and a lot of the sets um, that are the duplicated from the, um, the 20,000 leagues under the sea before but this one is slightly different uh, you know you do encounter a lot of unique um, underwater sea life mm -hmm. uh, a giant squid going under the polar ice caps things like mermaids and and, and the lost city of atlantis so it's all connected and a lot of treasure too yeah i mean a lot of stuff from the novel Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea so yeah it stands to reason and of course at the end you 
escape by, you know, escape the clutches of the giant squid using that electric charge. And it's just a really, really, really cool um, attraction, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea there. And it's just very unique, something different, uh, uh, unlike any other attraction. And as you go uh, out of that, you're basically going up another giant ramp to that to that location, um, to the walkway that goes all the way around the, the caldera and the waters below is there's a whole other attraction. It's kind of like the main attraction of the entire park. And that's Journey to the Center of the Earth. And that is where they where you board these subterranean vehicles, a model of which I'm holding right here. Now this uses the same technology as Test Track and Radiator Springs Racers. But in those, um, you actually have two rows of three people each. In this one, there are three rows of two people each. And if you can see the um, what I'm holding here, there's a uh, it's kind of like a like a digging vehicle that has a like a plow in front of it to basically crater through the earth. Um, and there's a lot of bars that go around, so you're definitely enclosed in this vehicle, and um, and you definitely feel that. But there's a lot of steampunk elements onto it as well. And here you basically just um, in this attraction, in the queue, you go through, once again, a lot of just really very unique um, uh, elements from the from that book, Journey to the Center of the Earth, of which there actually was a movie made, but not by Disney. And once again, that, this one actually stars James Mason as well. Hmm. Who knew? He's a fan. Yeah, so it's so anyway, because of the whole queue is kind of, you know, dug into the earth, there's lots of rock elements and, and things like that and all and a lot of Victorian steampunk elements as well. And eventually you get to uh, an elevator, which is they're called a terravator that a terravator. Terravator <laughs> that basically goes just deep deep into the earth. Mm. Uh, that you know, a bunch of people board onto this uh, thing, and it just goes. And this is actually um, very similar to elevators that are used in the Gringotts attraction huh. at uh, in so they don't Universal Studios. No, they go <laughs> deep, deep into the earth. Okay, <laughs> I promise you, they do go places. It definitely is a working elevator. I promise. All right. I believe you. Yeah. And you'd then you're let out. What's that? I said you'd never lie to me. Not once. <laughs> and then then just knowing that you're deeper and deeper into the earth, you uh, exit into this location where there's just a lot of pipes and, you know, a lot of um, s uh, steam and a lot of things because, you know, they're having to create air down there for you to breathe. Uh, it's really very cool. And that's where you encounter these subterranean vehicles. And you board all, all among into one of those. And you just go into a lot of the really cool um, locations, including a mushroom forest, uh, the crystal caverns. And there's, you know, you're so deep into the earth that there's actually uh, unique weather patterns down there. And what? you see lakes down there. Oh, that's and not weather. And storms, okay. and lightning, <laughs> and then weird. you come across a weird lava monster, ah, uh -oh. which is essentially one of the three largest uh, audio animatronics Disney's ever created, along with the Yeti at Expedition Everest and the dragon underneath the castle in Disneyland Paris. Well, I'm sure the lava monster has no mechanical issues. None whatsoever. <laughs> And, but he does kind of scare you a little bit to the point where you want to escape him. And so you're actually propelled into one of the f uh, funeral type things uh, up out of, and you come out of the earth at the top of the mountain. You go soaring down. Yikes. Uh, and that's actually at that very top point that you can actually see all around the park. Mm. And we're all people all around the park can see you. But it doesn't last long because it's very fast at this point so then they eventually go down a hill and around the caldera this sounds terrifying it really isn't it's just a lot of fun especially mm. when the weather is super cold that's fun <laughs> trust me but this is just one of the really cool things at uh, 
at this um, mysterious island. And there's even a, just a, re- a lot of other cool things there. The um, there's the Volcania restaurant, which is kind of dug into the earth, just like everything else there is. And they, here, here they actually interestingly use the Living Seas music, the mm. theme music from there. So it's all very themed and. That sounds fun. Yeah, and this is actually a mess hall that um, Captain Nemo uses for his crew, of course. So um, eventually we're going to have to get out there, and I'll have to show you this whole land. But it's just just the very coolest thing. It's a huge land just created out of the out of a giant volcano mountain. A lot of rock work. Very Jules Verne. That's right. And actually just outside of the volcano is, and it's not quite within the boundaries of Mysterious Island, but just outside of the volcano they do have the um, the, uh, the fortre- Fortress Explorations. Mm. But within that they have the Magellan's Restaurant, which is another um, portion of the Society of Explorers and Adventurers. Mm. So it basically all ties into each other. A lot of Jules Verne. It's all connected. That's right. Um, eventually, Disney did make one other movie um, based off of Jules Verne works, um, The Around the World in 80 Days. That classic with Jackie Chan. With, yeah, Jackie, Jackie Chan and Steve Coogan. It was actually a fun little film, but it goes all around a the world romp. in 80 Days. Yeah. Um, a couple of other references. You know, as you mentioned, the Mickey Mouse short, uh, Wonders of the Deep, is kind of based off of the uh, original 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Um, and I think we mentioned all of that. Also, in the movie Tomorrowland. Ah, yes. Remember that? The Eiffel Tower scene? When in the Eiffel Tower scene, they introduced uh, Jules Verne along with Gustave Eiffel as well as uh, Nikola Tesla and... Um, Edison, as being the original founders of Plus Ultra, which is essentially the Optimus Society. Let's try that movie again. It really is a lot of fun. I want to see more of the Plus Ultra stuff, though. Yes. Well, actually, they created a book, a companion book to the movie called Before Tomorrowland, which has a lot of the Plus Ultra stuff in it. Hmm. Yeah. There's even the symbol at the... The guy, he did Lost, right? That's right. Damon Lindelof and, and Brad, Brad Bird from The Incredibles. That's right. There's the plus ultra symbol. Oh my gosh, the folded page. No, it came that way. Oh. And actually has a whole comic book at the end. Wow, that's fun. Yeah, this is a real fun fun book. So anyway, um, for the most part, that is Jules Verne and Disney in a nutshell. Um I do enjoy that about Disney in general, that they take something that everyone can discover and relate to and find on their own and then see representations of that in their parks. I think that's a fun way to do things versus, which really, this goes (laughs) back to the old original attraction ideas versus intellectual property. Which I guess, you know, I everything mean, is intellectual property. Yeah, but essentially, Jules Verne is like the largest intellectual property yeah. that Disney doesn't own. But it's just cool because it's used in, I think we've probably gone through seven different theme parks, at least. Uh, a lot of things were used in different locations, and I just love how Imagineering does that. And especially like what we've talked about with Discovery Bay, something that wasn't used that then they later used. Yeah. Uh, with you know, in, in Discovery Land in Paris, and and things that were that the ideas for Discovery Land Paris were then used. Uh, as I mentioned, that elevated train was eventually the uh, the elevated train that they built in in Tokyo Disney Sea. It wasn't in Mysterious Island. It does connect uh, connect the American waterfront to um, uh, Port Discovery. That's where my friends live. That's right. Duffy but, and Gelatoni. But it's a lot of the ideas where you know they. Ideas for a park that didn't get used get used right. later. So nothing is ever thrown away in imaginary. That's right. It might be put into a, a, a tucked away into a shelf for <laughs> a long time, but eventually it'll be dusted off and used yes. later. Well, thank you for organizing all of those yeah. 
I did want to bits. reference a couple of books that I used in my research, and these are really a couple of cool ones, which are very hard to find because <laughs> you actually we have to go to the park. We won't link to them. And <laughs> this is a Tokyo Disney Sea book, which can only be gotten at Tokyo Disney Sea, and there's actually Probably no words. Probably eBay too. Maybe. Probably you could find it on eBay, but there's a lot of really cool mysterious island photographs in that one. And I really wanted to mention this book, The Disneyland Paris from Sketch to Reality for all of my Discoveryland research um, by Hélène Littier and Didier Guez. Hélène Littier just passed away this past year, and uh, that was very sad. But this is just one of the really coolest books that they made uh, about all about the entire Disneyland Paris. And there's probably about 40 or 50 pages just on Discoveryland in this book alone. Very cool. Just like 40 or 50 minutes of it in this podcast. At least. Sorry <laughs> about that. I probably <laughs> went on a little bit too long, as I it's often okay. do. It's fine. Unless yeah. no one is listening anymore. But let us know if you enjoyed this episode. And if you have experienced any of these rides and attractions, even some of the far-off ones. I know at least Jeff Lepeck, our faithful yeah. listener, has been to Tokyo <laughs> Disneyland and... Indeed. Disney Sea. Um, so yeah, let us know in the comments. Drop us a, a tweet or on Facebook, yeah. uh, Instagram, all that fun stuff. Follow us on YouTube and give us a thumbs up. Rate us on wherever you listen to your podcast so more people will discover us and tell your friends. Yes, please. <laughs> As always, we thank you for listening and thank you for joining us up the waterfall. That's right, up the waterfall.